Repetition is one of the best ways to make a point. When you want something to stick, you find creative ways to repeat it. Every great teacher knows this. Jesus is no exception. When you study his life, a very clear pattern emerges. That pattern is what this episode is all about. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. Today's story is part five of seven, where we talk about the rabbi's message to the world. The night surrounded Peter, oppressive, a vicious creature lurking in every glimpse and shadow. When you are alone and pursued, the darkness takes new form. Branches are hands grasping, the soft movement of small animals amplified by fear. Peter always preferred the water to the forest. There are not many places danger can hide on his fishing boat. The forest is a dense tangle of threat. He could not see danger until it was far too late. Peter runs, the rush of wind cools his skin and the burning air in his lungs gives him new vigor and purpose. He's running towards the priests and guards that chained Rabbi. Muscles strain against the night air, thick with desperation and sweat. Song and joy ring off the branches. The path rushes by as Peter seeks direction. He follows the noise of the crowd some distance ahead, near the edge of the garden. He hears the raucous, metallic celebration of the temple guards. These men rarely use their weapons. They rarely use their training. So they decide to spar. Peter rushes towards them. He thinks maybe there would be hope in a surprise rescue. But as he gets closer, the size of the crowd chases his heroic desire out of mind. He keeps running, each step bringing sense back to him. He stops a mere feet from the group in the shadow of a lush olive tree. A step closer would bring him to the nearest circle of torchlight and sure discovery. Racked with the pain of dismay and anger, he walks backward, shaking his head. He cannot risk being seen. He knows what would happen to him. Instead, he follows just beyond the light, avoiding hiding. At moments, his courage wins the day, and he steps back towards the rabbi. Fear and self-preservation then stay his feet. He continues this hesitant trail, a step toward them, two steps away. Peter's caught between fear and loyalty. Peter is stuck. So we've arrived at the verse that started this entire story. The one that is equally haunting and helpful at the same time. Hopefully by now, you see why. Uh, on one hand, I want to shout at Peter, what are, are you doing? This isn't over. There's still time. Get back in the game. Go save the day. But on the other hand, I get it. Like, I resonate with Peter. If I were in his shoes, I would probably be following at a distance too. It's clear that Peter wants to leave, but something is keeping him around. So what is it? My best guess is that he couldn't get all the memories of the last three years out of his mind. Peter walks next to John and James. He doesn't know the others, so he keeps his distance for now. But he knows that soon they will all share enough meals together to break down any hesitation on Peter's part. He understands that this collection of ego and insecurity has begun to come together. Jesus, the rabbi who has gathered them all together, has stopped 
as they walked by the city center. The men continue walking, slowly getting used to the strange behavior of their new teacher. They pass a tax collector, cursing and shunning him, a traitor, a man who has turned on his people in favor of a Roman payday. Follow me. Peter stops. He turns back to see who Jesus has just invited to join them. His chest turns hollow. It can't be, he thinks, not him. Anger and fear and disappointment, distress and confusion, Peter tries to process and name how he feels in that moment. But no one is more confused than the tax collector. He looks around, baffled. Is this a joke? He was used to ridicule, but this seemed unusually cruel. Is it a trap? Some test by the governor to measure his loyalty? It'll be helpful at this point to pause for a few minutes and cover a little background information about the world this story is taking place in. In 336 BCE, a Greek man named Alexander the Great inherited the throne. He was 19 at the time and does what any young person does when they inherit too much power too early on in their life. He sets out to try to conquer the world. The difference with Alexander the Great is he was actually really good at it. And although he only lived to be 32 years old, he had tremendous success. This mentality was nothing new. Humans have been trying to get power and control ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. But Alexander's objective was slightly different than anybody who had come before him. Up until this point, nations just wanted to rule over other nations. Alexander wanted to create a single world order he could control, almost like a god. So the goal was to implement Greek culture into every nation they conquered. And as you can imagine, it spread quickly, especially for the upper class, because now if you wanted your kids to be set up for a good job when they grew up, you made sure they not only knew how to speak the Greek language, but also how to relate to the Greek culture. And so Greek culture spread like wildfire. We even have a word for this process today. We call it Hellenization. So everyone began speaking Koine Greek. Koine just means common or shared. Now stick with me for a second because here's where it gets interesting. Koine Greek is the language the majority of the New Testament is written in, which is fascinating because the Greeks were not in charge in Jesus's day. Rome was, and had been since they sieged Jerusalem in 63 BC. It didn't stop there, by the way. Rome was now ruling the majority of the known world. So our story is taking place in a city that has been heavily influenced by Greek culture, yet is ruled by Rome. Because Rome didn't rule the same way. They weren't worried about culture. That's why in the Bible, you never see them making a push to make Latin the official language of Jerusalem or anything like that. So here's the interesting question. If you aren't using culture to spread your power, how are you doing it? How do you remain in control of so much space? The answer is a really large military, which is expensive. And so how do you fund a military that large? You tax the people. But that still leaves one problem. Where are you going to find the manpower to tax that many people? Simple. Recruit from within. Find citizens of the towns you are oppressing who are willing to sell out and work for you by taxing their own people. Enter tax collectors. 
why on earth would someone sell out like that? Because they were allowed to tax whatever amount they wanted. Rome would simply ask for the agreed upon amount, then they'd look the other way, which means you could charge whatever you wanted and keep the extra cash. Meanwhile, no one could touch you because if they did, they'd have to answer to the Roman military. It's a win-win for Rome and for tax collectors. It's a lose-lose if you're a hard-working Israelite trying to provide for your family. So tax collectors are not only traitors, they're notorious for being immoral traitors. Jewish men helping Rome fund the very movement keeping them oppressed all to make some money for themselves. So as you can imagine, the tax collectors are hated. And that's an understatement. Despised, ignored by everyone except Jesus. Jesus simply smiles at Matthew, refusing to break eye contact. He nods to the man, confirming his call. Peter stares at Matthew. He has been there, stunned and numb. Peter could only guess at the particulars running through Matthew's mind right now, but he had some idea. Follow him? What does that mean? Should I give up the job? The protection of Rome? And my people call me a traitor. They hate me. Matthew didn't think following this young rabbi would be enough atonement. Peter has faced this decision. He watches Matthew's eyes grow with curiosity and calculation. The tax collector smiles genuinely. He deliberately closes his book and stands. Where? Jesus smiles wider. Let's eat. This is probably the first time Matthew has had guests over in a long time. At least guests who aren't other tax collectors. In the next verse, it's clear that many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners came and reclined at the table with Jesus. That's the company that Matthew kept. It's kind of your only option when you're a tax collector. They are the outcasts, so they band together and be outcasts together. But I love how comfortable they all are around Jesus. And what appears to be a matter of moments, Jesus breaks every social barrier and has them all reclining at the table with him. And remember, that's more than just enjoying a good meal together. That's a statement of social acceptance. I picture them talking freely, laughing, and just enjoying a meal together at the table. That's the rabbi's first move with Matthew. Before anything else, they go to the table. As if to say, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that whole changing the world thing. But first, food. Jesus established right off the bat that there is a place at the table for Matthew. Not just for Matthew either, but for all of his friends. Let's recline at the table together because we're cool. Don't worry about the past. Life is good. Let's eat. Those are the types of memories I picture Peter sifting through as he is going through this night. Because by the way, this is the type of thing Jesus did over and over again during his ministry. Peter is still running. He remembers that day fondly and with not a small twinge of shame for how he first reacted to his friend Matthew. The memory occupies him while he runs. At times, he moves closer to the crowd. At others, he backs into the shadows. His mind wanders again. 
Suppose one of you had 100 sheep and loses one of them. John looks knowingly at Peter. Peter lowers his head and smiles. It's been a few years following the rabbi now, and they've traveled all over Israel. People have started to gather wherever they go. But not the people Peter expected when he answered the call to follow. The way he speaks draws everyone to him. Fishermen, young families, shepherds, merchants, religious leaders, lawyers, tax collectors. Wealthy, poor, righteous, sinner. Everyone is welcome to listen to Rabbi. In fact, so many come to hear him that he rarely teaches only in the synagogue. He has taken to speaking on hillsides and in courtyards, even in people's houses. Peter still wonders at this strange life, but he's used to eating with tax collectors now. He even sits next to Matthew at some meals. Jesus is now doing what he does best, telling stories. Today, he addresses the Pharisees. Peter and the others are used to these attacks by now. They continually press Rabbi on eating with sinners and outcasts. In his most intimate moments, Peter still sometimes sides with their complaints. The Pharisees are in a bad mood today. They demand an explanation for why Jesus continues to eat with these people. Jesus never answers directly. He is telling them a story about lost sheep. The tax collectors and sinners nervously look at each other. They were hoping for a more direct and more secure defense. But Peter looks back at John, and John laughs. The story is about a, a shepherd. The shepherd has a hundred sheep he watches over, but then one of them wanders off. And so instead of cutting his losses, the shepherd leaves the other 99 and heads out to find the one. When he finally does, he breathes a sigh of relief, picks him up, and carries him back to the flock. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and throws a party. The friends probably don't quite understand the party, but they're just excited to sit at a table to eat and drink and have a good time. The tax collectors shuffle and look at the ground. The Pharisees stare at Jesus, dumbfounded. No one expected this strange, opaque story. Peter doesn't get it, but then he usually doesn't. He's surprised to see that the priests don't seem to understand either. Peter glances at Rabbi nervously. Jesus lets the silence linger. He takes a breath and resumes. Peter quickly looks at him again. Another story? This one is about a woman and her house. The woman has her hands full, keeping the house and the finances, and she currently has 10 silver coins called drachmas. These are Greek coins, about equivalent to a Roman denarius, or in other words, one day's wage for labor. So these 10 coins think 10 days worth of work. But she loses one of the coins. So what does she do? Tears the entire house apart, seeking diligently until she finds it. And she finally does. So she calls her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found my silver coin. I'm assuming the friends and the neighbors are a little confused, but just happy to sit at a table and celebrate. Are we seeing a pattern yet? That last story hit home with the tax collectors. People are beginning to nod. Peter looks out at the crowd. The Pharisees are the ones shifting uncomfortably now. He stumped them. This time Jesus doesn't wait. There was a man who had two sons. Heads raise. He has their attention now. Not everyone is a shepherd. Not everyone is a housekeeper. Fathers and sons? 
That everyone understands. And this story begins with a twist. The younger son wants his inheritance? More shocking still, the father gives it to him. The crowd collectively gasps at that part. The younger son heads out to a life of recklessness. A severe famine leaves him destitute. He feeds pigs to survive. The Pharisees nod approvingly. This is justice. The young man wakes up one morning and realizes the pigs live better than he does. A wake-up call. With no options left, he decides to return to his father. The Pharisees chuckle. They love righteous indignation and wait for the father's expected response. As the son approaches his father's house, shame and guilt slow his steps. He notices someone running towards him. It is the father. Embraces, kisses, and robe, a ring. The son cries in protest. He isn't worthy of such honor. The father pulls him closer. A calf fattened, a meal, a table. The son invited and welcomed at the table. My son was lost, but now he is found. What's the pattern? Things get lost. Sheep too dumb to know how to get back. Coins unable to move. Sons feeling too much shame to show face. But what the sheep and the coin and the son don't know is that there is a search party out for them. Because their value is not found in their morality, but in their existence. So the father stays on the front porch around the clock, eyes peeled for any activity in the distance. Why? Because he loves his son. When found, there is a party involving lots of people and food and yes, a table. Because our God is a God who wants to be with his children. Not just when they're behaving, but all around the clock. So when Peter is following at a distance, what is going on in his mind? I'm convinced it's all the stories Jesus has been telling for three years. Peter must be full of shame at this point, yet there is a glimmer of hope in him that maybe, despite running away from the rabbi in his darkest hour, there is still a spot at the table for him. That despite the fear and despite the embarrassment, maybe the rabbi hasn't given up on him quite yet. And so he keeps going one foot in front of the other. Peter sees the crowd slowing. They have arrived at their destination, the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. They have gathered into the courtyard. Peter sees this opportunity and slips in, staying in the back to avoid being noticed. Peter takes in the scene. A fire has been built in the center of the courtyard. Men gather around to stay warm. Peter realizes his hands and ears have lost some feeling. The warmth and flame entice him out of anonymity. Enough people have joined the crowd that he no longer fears detection. He makes his way to the fire, relieved that he is no longer alone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about this project at storiesinscripture.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SIS Project.